Welcome to the Mindful Dietitian podcast. I'm Fiona Sutherland, body inclusive non diet dietitian and yoga teacher from Melbourne, Australia, and director of the Mindful Dietitian. Please join me as I have important conversations with dietitians and health professionals from all over the world about getting brave and leaning into tough conversations as we cultivate a strong community of practitioners committed to body inclusive practice. We'll talk about mindfulness, we'll dig into diet culture, and we'll explore ways of bringing courageous and important topics into our professional spaces so we can more deeply understand our own experience and make our work more meaningful. Thank you for joining me. Hello and welcome back to this next episode of the Mindful Dietitian podcast. Thank you so much for being here with me today. So this conversation is one that is a little bit more suited to curling up on the couch with a lovely cup of your favourite tea, as opposed to some of my more recent conversations, maybe with Victoria Wellsby or maybe with Laura Thomas, where they're probably a little bit more suited to Barstool and Margarita, I guess um, might be a better description there. So this was a very, very special conversation. Tamar Rothenberg is a local of LA and has her private practice there. She specialises in oncology dietetics and is best known as the breast cancer nutritionist across social media. So for many years, Tamar has specialised in nutrition specifically for breast cancer thrivers. And one of her main skills, and this is uh, very obvious here, is she's able to cut through so beautifully the confusing nutrition information. And uh, Tamar is very much a health at every size, an intuitive eating and body trust proponent. Tamar is also an adjunct professor of nutrition at Touro College and University and also something I did not know about Tamar is she most recently co-authored the study called Coping with Cancer in the Kitchen. So oncology nutrition is a topic very close to my heart and I, I couldn't think of anybody better to have this conversation with than Tamar who, who shares a bit about her own personal experience here but talks about her passion for really uh, helping our clients to navigate mixed messages and the weight stigma. It is so infuriating the way that weight stigma and fat phobia really interrupts people's experience in the oncology space and how that does nothing at all for people's fears around the diagnosis and not only around diagnosis and treatment but then also post-treatment as well. So Tamar and I really talk about here how dietitians can help clients to uh, address fears around food and, and Tamar really introduces us to the word thriver rather than survivor and how radical acceptance and body trust can support thrivers long term. So it's not just about uh, diagnosis or treatment, but it's also about addressing fears and, and well-being long term. So here we also talk how we can work actively to ensure weight inclusive care in oncology amongst other spaces as well. So one of the more interesting sections of this uh, conversation that I really enjoyed is the idea that, quote unquote, I should be grateful that there's now evidence of cancer and actually that some people don't feel that at all. Actually, they feel really angry or they feel really pissed. 
or, or maybe there's um, a lot of feelings of just simply not feeling well, whether that's um, mentally well or physically well, or maybe a feeling of not feeling at home in my body. And how these kind of conversations are very much part of a dietitian's role. That any conversations around body image, it is not one person's job, it is everyone's job and how we can have these conversations in a way that really promotes healing. So I just really wanted to say a big thanks to Tamar for your specialist knowledge and all the, uh, all, all the, you're just so generous. And I just really wanted to say a huge thank you to you, Tamar, for sharing this very important conversation on, on the Mindful Dietitian podcast. For those of you who are new here, this is episode 60. So you might like to go back and, and listen to some other episodes if this kind of thing interests you. Uh, every guest I have is vastly different and that's on purpose, obviously, because it's just so fascinating and interesting and keeps, um, keeps the joy alive when we're listening to a variety of different people who are speaking about their passion subjects, but all surrounded uh, by the, the sweet, sweet cushion of weight-inclusive practice. So if you're new not only to the podcast but also to The Mindful Dietitian, the main website is www.themindfuldietitian.com.au and there you'll find online courses and training, uh, opportunities to find out more about weight-inclusive dietetic practice, supervision and all kinds of goodness. If you're interested in joining us on the Facebook group, then that is also The Mindful Dietitian. That is specifically for uh, professionals who are interested in health at every size and, and weight-inclusive work. If you're new to this space, you are more than welcome. We encourage curios curiosity and we encourage you to bring any form of newness, it doesn't matter where you are in your career, to that Facebook group. So again, a huge thanks to Tamar Rothenberg for joining me for this conversation and I hope you really enjoy it. Thanks for being here. Hello, Tamar, and thank you so much for joining me here on the Mindful Dietitian podcast. It's wonderful to be connecting in this way. Thank you. It's actually a great honor for me, and I'm, I'm going to totally embarrass you and tell you that you really got me going on health at every size and mindful, you know, dietitianing, and it was just, it's really, it's, it's a whole, you know, lovely closed circle to be on your podcast right now. Oh, that's so wonderful, Tamar, and I know that we do share um, a number of passions in common, which I can't wait to dive into here, because you've got a very uh, unique skill set that you bring to weight-inclusive practice, which, you know, I can't wait to share that with people. Um, and, oh, wow, thank you. I really appreciate that. I, I think you've introduced the verb, non-mindful uh, dietitianing. <laughs> Yes, we need more language around it. <laughs> oh, definitely. My gosh. Well, it is a, it, it's, it's not just a, a, a thing to be or a, you know, community to be part of, but it's, it requires some action, doesn't it? As all, you know. Right, yes. Yeah, it's a verb. All right, I'm going to borrow that. Credit, <laughs> I can trademark, okay. Tamar. <laughs> I'll give you 10%. How's that? <laughs> well, now that's it. I can retire. <laughs> <laughs> well... I'm not sure about that. But anyway, <laughs> you're in LA Prices too, my gosh. Excuse me? You're, you're in LA Prices as well. Oh, yes, yeah. Well, yes. Beverly Hills, even more, yes. Whoa. <laughs> so Aussie dollar plus LA Prices plus Beverly Hills. Yeah, sorry. You're going to be able to go for a, lo <laughs> for a coffee. That's it. <laughs> That's about right. Yeah. Um, so it's such a great pleasure to speak with you. You know, 
you and I guess have been connected for uh, a couple of years now and we were just saying before we pressed record that it's some kind of uh, it's, it feels a little bit odd that we haven't met in person because we literally probably know 50 people in common. And right. as, it, as it so happens in, um, in health at every size dietitian circles, we become, we get to know each other really well just through online spaces, don't we? Yes. And, and I get to learn from the best. So for me, it's a real treat. Yeah, that's amazing. You've got Evelyn Triboli just down the road. Amazing. And I'm in... I still go to supervision with Elise Resch. She's literally a mile away, so there's no excuse. Oh, so my goodness. A, yes. And there's some amazing uh, dietitians in L.A. as well. There is. You've got a wonderful yes. community there. Yeah, we really do. That's so cool. Um, so, so speaking of community, I guess that's probably a, a nice place for us to start. You know, how do you... How do you use your community, your local LA dietitian community, um, you know, to help to bolster your own um, your own practice? What do you What do you do to to kind of stay connected and um, you know help each other out? Uh, a lot of lunches, <laughs> of course, <laughs> of course. No, but really, I continue to go to supervision with Elise. Um, it's just a fantastic group, um, and we're always meeting new people as well. But I went way beyond the four, you know, necessary um, uh, sessions that we needed because it's just uh, an amazing thing to learn um, from her and from everybody else. So that's one thing. But really, the I feel like what I work in is more um, national as well. So we have online groups. Um, we're actually now um, on the this committee. It's called the Weight Neutral. Um, group for oncology dietitians, and we're starting to look at changing the language um, on the oncology uh, dietitian practice group website and the papers and the handouts. And it's all voluntary, and people are just very supportive and involved in that. So that's a wonderful uh, experience as well. Oh, that is. Yeah, that, that kind of way of working as a dietitian literally can save lives really save Absolutely. save you know save our patients lives as well as I, I've come to believe over many years of practice that it also saves careers weight neutral dietetic saves careers as well that's right because you know we see the curve people get discouraged and then they discover this and it just it feels right it sits right it works right and you're just like you can't go back. You don't have a choice. You can't go back. <laughs> Once you see it, you can't unsee it. <laughs> kind of like That's a, right. kind of like a bad episode of, I don't know, Seinfeld <laughs> or something. I don't know. Anyway, I, <laughs> I don't know. I'm terrible when it comes to um, scary movies. I have a very visual memory. And so when my 10 year old said to me, Oh, you know, um, all my friends are watching stranger things. Can I watch stranger things? I was like, no, actually. I, I actually like that a lot, but okay. <laughs> oh, would you recommend it for a 10 year old? Um, I don't think so. No. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so I'll pass Certainly that along then. Mine's not 10 anymore, but I wouldn't recommend it. Yeah. Okay. I just don't think it. Yeah. Okay, good There's to know. Better options. <laughs> yeah, some better options. Well, interestingly, he's become very um, fond of The Simpsons, which 
so now I'm re-watching it again. I know, very edgy. Yeah. Uh, very adult, actually. And so I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> so we're having some interesting conversations. It's scary too. <laughs> it's scary in a different way. Right. Yeah. yeah. So you, you touched on there that um, you're part of a national um, group for oncology dietitians aiming to inject some weight neutral language and practice into national guidelines, which sounds absolutely incredible and very, very much needed. So I'm very keen to talk to you more about that. But you are, you are most well known for your work as an oncology dietitian and, and how you have been really instrumental, especially in the communities that I move in. Um, in really elevating the intersection of on oncology, nutrition, and uh, weight-inclusive practice. So I'm so curious to hear a little bit about, you know, how you, how you came to be an oncology specialist and, and why this means so much to you. Well, thank you for asking. I, I really, I have to say that at the beginning, I felt very alone in this space, and I had people like you that I felt, okay, I can forge forward my own path. That gave me a lot of strength. But um, now there are more, um, you know, there are, just like in this group that we're doing, there are oncology dietitians who are specialists in oncology CSO. Um, I don't, I generally work with um, cancer survivors, meaning they're finished active treatment, because that's a whole different path when they're in treatment. The focus is on nourishment, getting enough calories, dealing with side effects. So that, you know, that's a clinical role and I did work in it for a while, but now I'm just, I, I find a better fit for me is working with survivors um, because I feel like when they're done with active treatment, it's what we call the cliffs. They're thrown off the cliff. Mm. You know, you shake the oncologist's hand, you say, oh, you're here, you survived. See ya maybe in three months and then six months. And, and you're like, but, 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 but no, I'm still not feeling well. I'm still not doing well at all. And my body image is shot, <laughs> you know? Um, so that's where I like to come in and pick up some of the pieces, what I call kind of the aftermath of uh, cancer and specifically breast cancer. That's really what I deal with. Um, that's the focus of my work. I find that um, there's a lot of work to be done in that space. <laughs> yes. Accepting your body, um, and weight neutrality. Those are there's a lot of um, mixed messages coming out, and it's very hard for. I call them thrivers, not survivors necessarily. The language is actually very important, but um, there's a lot of um, mixed messages that are very painful for thrivers yes. when they're when they're finished with treatment. Do you mind stepping us through some of those mixed messages, please, Tamar? Because I wonder if you know, I guess I'm a big fan of let's unpack the suitcase. Let's just see what we're dealing with here. Right. Because if we can, um, if we are working with somebody who is a thriver, um, and I love that, by the way, thank you so much for sharing that language with us um, so that we can, you know, carry that through into our practice as well. Um, you know, what, what are we actually looking for here in terms of what people are hearing? So, um, you know, uh, it's what they're hearing and what they're incorporating mm. from those messages. So first of all, you have to, it's important for people to understand there's, there's so much self-blame, and especially with breast cancer. Somehow I did it to myself, or I caused it, or uh, literally I just gave two talks last week kind of back-to-back, -back, and that was the prevalent theme, people saying, 
you know, one driver said, I, I must have done this to myself because I was drinking two sodas a day. And when I, after I gave the talk and she specifically said, I am so at peace right now because I did not do this to myself. But they won't hear this from anybody else. They won't hear this. So it's actually, I think it's very similar even to a diabetes diagnosis where there's so much self-blame and I'm, you know, I must have been eating all the wrong things. And uh, it's important to, to really dispel that myth. There is nothing you did to cause your breast cancer. Of course not. There is no superfood. There is no nutrition, you know, one food that you did to yourself. So it's important to know that it's out there, that people are feeling that. And even if they're not expressing it, they're thinking of it. From, you know, for most drivers that I work with. So, um, and the language is important because of that self-blame. So for example, um, I don't use the word um, prevention, cancer prevention. First of all, they already got cancer. So they're gonna be upset they're using that word, but also um, there is no prevention. It, you know, a lot of it is genetics, bad luck, environmental, maybe, we don't know. Um, so, you know, they really resent that word. They get really upset. Uh, not, I'm not talking like a whole, like they're all monolithic, but that's kind of the general feeling that I get when I speak to thrivers and, and they get upset about that because that taps into that self-blame. So it's important to, um, so instead I'll use, I'll use uh, risk reduction because there is some established risk reduction. Behavioral changes you can make. Um, again, it doesn't mean prevention. We all know people who did everything perfectly, vegans or whatever you want to, you know, consider perfect, marathon runners. Um, there's a woman who swam the channel four times. You know, she had breast cancer. All these women are getting breast cancer. So it's not something anybody does that they did wrong. So that's important. Yeah. So, so the theme you're really talking about there is shame and blame and, and the stigma that kind of underlies that. It is there is a stigma. Oh, definitely. And I, I wonder if you've noticed that um, women and femmes who are thrivers across different, uh, who are in different body sizes, whether they have different experiences of, uh, of healthcare, um, whether, you know, women in smaller bodies are not necessarily the recipients of a lot of kind of weight stigma and, and blame and shame. Whereas women in larger bodies for whom um, maybe longer term, they've been kind of swimming in the swamp of, of weight stigma. Um, I wonder whether this is something that is experienced inequitably across the weight spectrum. Is that, is that something that you observe? I observed and I experienced myself. So I, I know that's a fact. Um, you know, it cuts across from the beginning, from pre-treatment, from the beginning, from screening, all the way through after treatment. And I'll give you some examples. So we know that larger size women go for fewer mammograms. That's a real problem because um, breast cancer, especially the slower growing uh, breast cancers, which are more predominant, um, are easily found, more easily found on mammograms. And you have longer time to find them because they are slower growing. So um, there were, there's a few studies that I've seen already where they clearly document the weight stigma, why women are not going for mammograms. So the larger size women, they cite things like they're embarrassed in the exam room. They've gotten negative reactions from healthcare providers. They've gotten actual lectures about their weight, which should never be a part of, you know, especially going for a mammogram. There's no reason 
that should ever be brought up. You don't have to be weighed for a mammogram. Um, but they also say things like gowns don't fit. These are very simple fixes, right? Um, and the exam tables and the equipment are too small or that the mammogram itself is more painful. So again, there's not accommodations made for their size. So this is unique to uh, mammograms and to breast cancer. You don't find this across other cancers as much. So it's, it's a unique thing that women are experiencing. And then what happens is you go for fewer mammograms. What happens? Less breast cancer is detected. You have worse outcomes. So now you start to have these headlines and studies that, oh, you know, they correlate a higher BMI with worse outcomes, but there's no weight stigma in that correlation. And it's not really a correlation because it's, there isn't a direct cause and effect. Anyway, it's never been proven. So then you start to see these headlines about, well, obviously there's a lot of self-blame there. <laughs> when really, couldn't you get a gown that fits somebody? <laughs> and then you tell somebody, um, so some of the suggestions are, well, call ahead, see if they have um, accommodations, right? M mammography centers that have accommodations. Well, really, are you going to do that? Because it's hard enough to get a mammogram. It's uncomfortable. It's something you like to put off. Are you going to call ahead and say something that's very uncomfortable to ask for? So it, why is it on the side of the patient? It should be on the side of the healthcare. So it starts from there, from the screening, okay? So the screening is much worse. And then, um, actually there was a presentation I saw about what physicians said about, um, you know, uh, healthcare with larger sized women. And some of the quotes were horrific, so I will not repeat them here. But um, so it's definitely just more indication of the prevalence of weight stigma. Um, and then, then it goes through treatment. So inactive treatment, um, there's this thing where you have to dose the chemo, right? More precise medicine. Um, you can't go above a certain amount. It's a toxic dose. They don't know what the amount is for certain body sizes. They're kind of guesstimating. Um, they know they have to put a cap on it. If there's a cap and it's not enough chemo for you, you are going to have worse outcomes. There's no question. So again, we're getting back to the research where they say worse outcomes for BMI well, did you include the fact that there has to be a cap on chemo and radiation? And we don't, we don't, it's not an exact science. So that goes through treatment. And then when I come in is after treatment where it's super prevalent because now you are given more lectures about your weight because now if you gain weight, you're gonna die, which is not true. We know it's not true. There are things you could do completely independent of your size and weight. So, um, so you have the delayed diagnosis, you have the imprecise medicine, and then you have, um, after, as survivors, there are certain hormonal medications, you, most hormonal positive cancers that you have to take to either block or reduce estrogen. Well, guess what? For most women, you will gain weight from that. There's nothing you can do. Nothing. It completely messes with your appetite. You get up and you're starving in the morning. Can you tell somebody not to eat or that you should eat less? No. So um, that's the aftermath. So throughout all this, weight stigma plays a role. And then um, what happens with, um, you know, there's a lot of trauma around a breast cancer diagnosis. Are you, is, you know, uh, so you follow through that trauma and the weight stigma and you throw it all in. And it's really, really a tough, a tough thing. Um, and then, so then when we get to where I'm at, when they're on, let's say, the hormonal reducing, medications and they're gaining weight and they're very upset about it. 
uh, given the diet culture that's going on, they all want, um, I, I call it a new form of diet culture because no one's really paying attention to that part where they're asking for um, weight loss medications at that point and they're actually being prescribed that. Oh, uh, yes. Patients that you probably haven't heard about in years, they're being prescribed. Oh my God. Um, and their appetite's all over the place. And, you know, they went through, let's say if you went through chemo, your, you had taste changes, your appetite was affected, you don't trust your body because of the GI symptoms, very common. And then you get to where you're past treatment, you think you should be living your best life. Mm. You're actually restricting your food, you're attempting to control your life with food. You think if I have more food rules, I can control the outcome better. So that's, we have to be aware that that's what happens with drivers, that they kind of rely on food as a form of control because nothing else, Cancer is chaos, really, and nothing else is controllable. So now you're given, let's say, you're, you're prescribed a weight loss medication, and it's, to me that's a disaster because then you're not in touch with your appetite anymore. Um, you're fully trying to control something that is unchangeable at this point, and, and you're getting a lot of these scary messages around weight, which are, um, it's not, it doesn't come out in the research. Um, uh, and you know, it's funny because when I see things like, um, okay, so for example, uh, a higher weight is seen as more protective for premenopausal breast cancer. It's a fact, it's in the research. And they always say, we don't know why, we don't know why. But then when it comes to like, oh, BMI, higher BMI, more cancer risk, we do know why. It's your weight. No, we don't. It's not the same. It's exactly the same as the other one. Why are you saying we don't know what we, we do know why? There's no cause and effect. So it's very interesting, again, the language around that. I don't know why they decided to focus on the weight when there's so many other things that we could be focusing on. You know, where you live, what kind of health care you're getting. Your zip code says more about your health and your, you know, your, even the, you know, your, the care you're going to get during cancer treatment. So anyway, so this is, I'm just throwing all these facts in because that's where weight stigma comes in and it affects throughout the trajectory of cancer, cancer care, basically. Yeah. Uh, Tamar, thank you so much for stepping us through that so thoughtfully because um, I think sometimes when we have a, a client or a patient in front of us who might be coming to us with um, weight concern or really terrible body image and they do share with us about their experience of, of for example, breast cancer, which is what we're talking about today, that sometimes I think those of those of us who for whom uh, we're not we're not particularly familiar with that experience or haven't had a lot of clients with that experience um, then I then I wonder I think sometimes we flounder a little bit in kind of knowing how to best support and help people who have been through a shitload already like you know they right. Their lives have, like you say, cancer is chaos, and then the it makes complete human sense to want to make sense. Um, sorry, to put, put to kind of put that chaos back into a way that makes sense yeah. for us, and and preferably to be tying that up with a nice bow, right? And yeah, a pink bow, <laughs> a pink bow. That's it. glittery oh, bow. A lot of people hate the pink ribbon, so I'll, I'll include that in the language. You have to be very careful. Some people like pink ribbons. Some people hate them. 
um, or they appreciate them because of the awareness. Some people hate the breast cancer marches. Some people actually get a lot of this, what they call collective joy. So again, it's not a monolithic group. We can't see it that way. And we have to appreciate the differences. I, um, I wonder if it's okay that I ask you about, you know, some of the, um, I was going to say dichotomous, they're not dichotomous experiences, but the holding of what feels like some really tricky intersecting experiences um, in Thrivers. And, I'm, I, and I raise this because a number of years ago now, I had my first um, client. Actually, I don't think she was my first. I think it was the first who told me, actually, to be honest, as, as, so, as is so often the case, you know, that you know, we, we perhaps see people with eating disorders way before we, you know, name them or before people uh, feel safe enough to share that right. with us. But I had this um, incredible uh, woman who I worked with who had a history of a terrible eating disorder and a history of trauma as well. She was a thriver and still is a thriver. And uh, she was uh, right at the, she had finished her uh, the acute phase of her treatment and was on, um, like you say, the hormone-related medications um, afterwards and had noticed a real upsurge in her poor body image and and eating um, and kind of disconnected relationship with eating. So when you're stepping through this, I was like, oh, yes, these are the conversations that we had actually around um, disconnection and, and gut symptoms and trust and how that related also to her past experiences of, um, of, of trauma as well. So um, now one thing that I really learned from this client in particular, and interestingly, and I don't know whether this happens to you too. So this beautiful client of mine then went back to her um, cancer thrivers group. And then I ended up with like five of them in my practice, <laughs> uh, which is, I just adore these women so much they have taught me as a human not not only as a dietitian but a human so much about how to work well how to work compassionately with people um so my question for you that was a really roundabout way of asking it it's just kind of setting context there my question is one of the conversations that i remember having with this first client that i saw and we had it a lot was this intersecting idea of I feel like I should be grateful. I feel mm. like I should be, you know, grateful that this, that I'm now, you know, there is no evidence of the, of the cancer that I used to have. Um, and I'm actually really fucking angry, to be honest. I'm angry, uh, pissed. I'm, um, feel not well at all. I don't feel at home in my body. Uh, I just feel unwell. Uh, yeah, I just feel unwell a lot of the time. I don't feel connected with life. And yet there's this sense of, ooh, I should be grateful. And so, we, yeah, anyway, we talked about that a lot. So I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts as to whether that's a common thing that kind of crops up for people and how we can be really thoughtful about the conversations that we have around that. Right, right. That's a great point because... Um, um, some people just hate the positivity messages. You know, I see them on Instagram a lot and I'm thinking, do they know how it affects people? Because not everybody likes them. And then you feel obligated to feel that way. And you don't have to feel that way. It's your choice. 
Um, you know, a lot of my talks, I open with a quote from this book that I really enjoy called Growing North by Mary Pfeiffer. She's a psychologist. And uh, the book is on navigating life's currents and, currents and flourishing as we age. And the quote is from a breast cancer thriver, and she says, I am so damn tired of these effing growth experiences. <laughs> and when I say that, I can see everybody nodding. You know, it's just, yes, it doesn't always have to be a growth experience. You can make of it what you want. And, um, and it's okay either way. And yes, you're entitled to be angry. You're entitled to your anger to carry that anger and, you know, and do it productively. But um, so what I find when people have these, effing growth experiences is they they go to two extremes one extreme is um i don't care i have cancer i'm going to eat what i want you know in terms of nutrition and the other extreme what i mostly see that's why they're coming to me is they want to eat perfectly they no gmo all organic i'm going to have all control of my food so uh you know i always say let's find that gray area because nutrition of course is not black and white it's a gray area and um it's not you're letting it basically control you when you should be enjoying, you know, your food. Um, this is one thing that actually Elise Resch helped me with, and she, she had this great quote. Um, you know, when you're going through chemo and your appetite's affected, um, there's so many things going on. One of them is that you don't enjoy your comfort food. And so what I found with Thrivers is one of the things they tell me is I've lost my passion for food. I want it back. So, of course, if you're dieting, you're not getting it back. But so Elise said, um, you know, appetite is a sign of good health. And that is such a great mm -hmm. thing to tell a thriver. You know, not to negate that. Your appetite is a sign of health, whether whichever way you want to take it. But that's a sign of good health, especially after cancer. Um, so that, yes, thank you. That is just an important point to bring up. Mm. So for dietitians, do you have any particular ideas or, or tips around addressing people's fears around food? So you mentioned things like, you know, no GMOs or, um, you know, no this, no that, sugar-free, dairy-free, gluten-free, da 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 So what, can, what do you find are kind of helpful ways that we can address that? Because, of course, both aligning with that or standing in opposition to that, I feel like maybe that's not as helpful. So I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that. So um, a lot of them do want um, to know what to do. And again, we're back to the rules. So I don't like to focus too much on that. But I do like to focus on, of course, you know, intuitive eating and what you can add in instead of what you can take in out and focusing on not necessarily destroying yourselves, right? In terms of recurrence is a huge fear, obviously of recurrence, um, but growing more cells through nourishment and, you know, getting healthy. Um, you know, there are certain things you could focus on that we know has really good research behind it, like movement. So movement, again, uh, we see significant results um, independent of weight. Uh, and so that's just, what I find is it's a little frustrating because this is a common thing with drivers when they're even way beyond active treatment and they've had numerous surgeries, many of them, like five, six, ten surgeries, some of them. So they're afraid to move. They don't know how safely to move. Um, and so they just kind of give up and don't move. And instead of, uh, we find that physicians are not referring them to, for example, to a physical therapist. So that would be my first suggestion 
is there are um, people who specialize, physical therapists who specialize in oncology and lymphedemia as well. And they, there's a database of those people you could look up. Um, but so that would be my first suggestion is, you know, acknowledge that there is a fear of movement. The other thing is that um, the hormonal medications cause you to be more sedentary. As estrogen is lowered, there's a natural tendency to be more sedentary. Acknowledge that. Let's see how we can work with that. Um, there's more bone pain. There's a lot of bone pain, in fact. Um, if you already have, you know, a lot of breast cancer, is, most of the breast cancer is diagnosed um, past age 60. 62 is the median age. Younger is usually because of hereditary cancer. So um, there, there's a, there, it's all coming together, whether surgical menopause or natural menopause. Um, a reduction in estrogen, uh, bone pain. We have to acknowledge that it's really hard to get up and move. So let's find ways to, you know, to do that. Acknowledging the pain. Um, so, you know, and again, the self-blame comes in where a thriver will say to me, I'm really lazy. I said, you're not lazy at all. You're, you're doing what comes naturally. You're in pain. You know, I don't want to move. Uh, and also, maybe you're not eating enough. That's part of it as well. Um, and then uh, there is some science to go over. I find that that's helpful. They want to hear what's behind it. Just like even what I just said about estrogen dropping and being sedentary, that's a great relief to people to hear that. You know, it's not me. <laughs> it's just what naturally happens. Um, so some people want support groups. Some people don't. We have to acknowledge that there's a variety of opinions about that. Um, like you said about the positivity. Um, for, so for example, with lymphedemia, we used to say the default was lose weight. Actually, the, now the research is showing that has nothing to do with it. Weight-bearing exercise is what helps. So, you know, focus on these kinds of strategies that really help them. Um, and then there is, if there was uh, previously an eating disorder, breast cancer can bring out the eating disorder again to watch for. Um, it can bring out binge eating as well. So again, something to watch for. These are important things. Is that, um, some, is that something that you would, if you, if somebody comes to you and they share with you that they have had an experience of cancer, that they are a thriver, um, is that something that you would suggest that we overtly screen for? Is a previous experience of an eating disorder or disordered or dieting patterns? Would that yes, be a good idea? I do as an uh, every yeah. intake include that it has to be there um, because it's something to be watched. Yes, absolutely, and it doesn't come up in oncological visits usually. Just doesn't come up. Um, the other thing to be careful is is uh, they do need to be weighed, even past treatment, because uh, and and this, again, this is not something that's always discussed. We always, you know, the messages they're getting is weight is weight loss, but they. I always think about this, thrivers are terrified of, of weight loss as well because it's a sign of recurrence. So um, that has to be factored in. They, so yes, they do need to be weighed. Of course, there are sensitive ways to do it, just like with eating disorder patients. So something to um, acknowledge. I don't have a scale in my office because I figure they're doing it at their positions anyway. I don't need to add to that. <laughs> So, um, but it's something to, to, to know that that is a fear and it is a sign of recurrence. So both things at once. Oh, goodness me. That feels like a, a no win situation in lots of ways, doesn't it? 
Yes, that's why I don't have a scale in my office. I don't need to add to that, but um, I, I do try to give suggestions on ways to do it. Um, and, you know, even on my intake forms, I don't, I don't make anybody, of course, list their weight, but I do say, has there been a weight change? Because it, it needs, yep. to be, needs to be said, so. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's really wonderful and a really compassionate, open, um, open way of communicating that, that weight changes over time. It's, it's the same with, um, with kids, for example, you know, weight changes over time or deviations of right. that, which we might reasonably expect can just, just provide us a, a bit of a signpost as to, you know, maybe an area to ask some more questions or to do some more investigation or, you know, review ABC. Um, Yes, it's, I can imagine that that would be really tricky. And I have so much respect for the fact that you're like, the scale is coming nowhere near my office because of the space that you're wanting to provide, right? Exactly. Goes against, yes, absolutely. Um, and also, you know, things to work on. So it's very interesting because there are clinical guidelines um, that say that breast cancer uh, survivors should be screened for body image. I don't know anybody that's actually doing it, but it's in the guidelines because we know it's an issue mm -hmm. and, that, um, and that they should be referred, as I said, to physical therapists, which is not really happening either, um, either on the physician part or the patient doesn't even know to ask. How would you know? You know? So it's in the guidelines. <laughs> it's not something I came up with. Um, so body image is a big thing. And when we talk about things, of course, like radical acceptance, that absolutely applies to thrivers. And there's a great relief and there's a reduction in suffering when we emphasize things like, you know, um, this radical acceptance and that you can't change what's unchangeable. And being realistic about nutrition, how much you can really change in terms of breast cancer. Um, and then uh, another way that I like to work is to, um, in terms of body image, to emphasize having um, maybe focusing on a newer or a different identity at this point. Um, so, and especially you'll see this, which I really enjoy on Instagram now, a lot of tattoo artists are posting um, their work with breast cancer thrivers. And it is beautiful to see because <laughs> it's funny because there's a rule on Instagram that you can't show nipples, but you can show the entire breast. So most thrivers don't have nipples anymore. So, wow, you can show everything. <laughs> so they're showing these beautiful tattoos and I just love it because I see it as like, this is your new landscape. Go play with it, you know? And people are taking advantage. And I saw one a beautiful artwork where she made a crane, like a sign of life across her whole chest. And I was just so impressed. Like she's just doing great things. So it's important to give them, you know, that time and space to say, yeah, you can forge a different path. You can make that a new landscape. Um, it's like after a harvest and new things are happening and growing and this is your time. Um, so body image plays a really big role. Um, after breast cancer, I, I find. It's so interesting that you bring up tattooing. When I was in Toronto last year running the two-day non-diet training with Hayley Goodrich, we, um, we were in this amazing kind of bohemian neighbourhood <laughs> and I'll kind of, long story short, we passed this really cool tattoo place. And I said to Haley, I've always wanted to get a tattoo. And she said, well, maybe we should do that today. And I, and I think I, I, I think I went ashen. And then, 
<laughs> I was like, be my well, right. I knew exactly what I wanted. So that wasn't, you know, that wasn't part of it was, you know, thinking on the spot, you know, what I wanted. And so anyway, I went, we went into this to, I think they call them parlors. This was not a parlor. This was a studio. There you go. Studio. That's better. These, uh, there was a group of people obviously, you know, um, doing their tattooing and, um, an amazing young woman came up to us and was, you know, talking, talking to us about what we both kind of wanted. And we were just asking her about her work and about her art. And she said that she specializes in, um, in breast cancer thrivers and wow. yeah. And in particularly with um, nipple tattooing. Right. They're doing beautiful work now. I have to say they're doing oh. three nipples that are amazing. Okay. And also, you don't have to just do regular tattoos. There are medical tattooing that is uh, often covered by insurance um, that um, they actually give you, a, you know, a light anesthesia for that. And it, the medical tattoos last for much longer. They can last 20 years and with beautiful, um, you know, colors to match whatever actually you want. So it's really mm. nice. Anyway, I just wanted to throw that in. Sorry. No, I think that's really, but it was the first time I had worked with, you know, like I said, you know, five, six women. And this was the first time that I had really understood that aspect of, um, of aesthetic and of how the intersection of two seemingly very different worlds, right? A tattoo right. artist and a thriver. And, um, and she showed us some of her photos of what she'd done. And I was completely blown away. I was actually very, very moved by her, by this really life-changing work that this young woman was doing. I just thought to myself, you are not, not, I mean, not that a tattoo artist is just a tattoo artist, but I was thinking you're actually really changing lives here in, in ways that, that are incredible. So, um, yeah, there's lots of ways to make an impact. It's funny because I, I was also struck by that when I first found that out, like they're so compassionate in terms of like, there's no body shame. It's all out there. And, you know, it's just like, they both look so comfortable. The one who's getting the tattoo, the one who's doing the tattoo. And I was always right. It's true. I was always so impressed with that. Like you never thought those two things would go together. <laughs> no, it is. It's incredible how different, completely different worlds collide in ways that are truly healing. That's true. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, yeah, and so, you know, the body image, um, the other reason for the radical acceptance that I wanted to talk about was that it's so important for breast cancer thrivers because they, they have to notice changes. They still have to have a connection with their body. And there's, there's an attempt to disconnect because, you know, um, your body is the enemy. It tried to kill you. And, oh, so there's a, uh, I'll plug you in. There's a, uh, Oh, I don't. Think, I don't know if she's Australian. There's a famous comedian who has a whole skit about uh, breast cancer, and she said that she talked really badly about her breasts for many years because they're so small, and she complained how small they were. And she said, and one day they got up and decided to kill me. <laughs> oh. It's so funny, and it's you know you need that humor once in a while. So she talks about that as well. So there is that you have to maintain that body connection after breast cancer because of that because of the. Um, the need to know any changes. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and kind of being able to report those changes to your healthcare providers, um, you know, because obviously, you know, in a, in a 10 or 15 minute appointment, it's, it's pretty important that you're able to accurately be able to report um, not only any physical changes, any emotional changes, um, any gut related changes um, in ways that, that, that help your providers to help, help you. Right. And there's even a term for that. You do have to go for more checkups um, after breast cancer. So it's called scanxiety. You have enormous anxiety about going through scans and getting checked. And so that's kind of another reason to disconnect from your body. So all these things have to be acknowledged. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's interesting you say that because that was definitely, definitely my experience with with the women that I worked with Um, and that I think out of the five or six of them, I think it was at least at least half of them that I was still seeing them when they were when they were um, going for their ongoing scans, and it was um, a true privilege actually to be able to support them through the because the lead up wasn't like twenty four hours. It was you know once the appointment had been made or once the date had been set by the oncologist um, in their previous appointment, they might know three months in advance that that was going to be the the date of their scan and and um, you know doing the work of of um, you know even things like nervous system work you know and um, and helping um, to maintain body trust and, and connection is is really important right, and I know you do you're a yoga teacher as well. So that can be extremely helpful for some and not for others, right? Mm-hmm. Would they find their form that, that works with them? I found one thriver who just cried every yoga session. So we decided to let's just calm down and you don't have to do it, you know? So it, it can bring out that trauma as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, acknowledging that, that, change, that what works for you doesn't work for everybody. But I, I have yoga and the, um, the cancer support community where I, I did my research project. They have therapeutic yoga there. That is their most popular class. And um, it's just beautiful to watch as well. These slow, beautiful movements done in the right way. Yeah, that's so true. I'm so glad you brought that up because, um, you know, I you're right. I am a yoga teacher and um, I'm a big fan of how yoga can assist with with healing on so many levels um, and also I just really appreciate and I'm really, I, I feel like it's fair to be transparent that um, the teacher and the style has a lot to do with people's experiences, um, bo- both fortunately and unfortunately and, um, and having a, um, a, a teacher who is very, very compassionate and trauma-informed and is holding a space where people can experience their bodies in gentle ways, um, you know, because I imagine cancer feels like an assault in so many ways. Right, right. You have to rebuild that body trust. It's really tough with every scan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So, Tamar, I'm curious to hear a little bit about, you know, so if we have opportunities to have conversations with our colleagues about um, weight-inclusive care in oncology spaces, both whether that is in kind of the treatment part of people's experience or whether, like yourself and most of our colleagues, are probably seeing um, women and femmes in that kind of post-treatment period of time, what kind of, um, what are the most important core messages do you think that we really need to be sharing with our colleagues 
um, uh, well, okay, so focusing on positive behaviors that, that are doable, being realistic about what you, you want to get down to kind of the nitty gritty or like what nutrition can actually do for you. So there's certain things, you know, obviously we actually have a lot more research behind exercise than nutrition, to be honest, in terms of breast cancer risk, that physical exercise definitively reduces risk of recurrence. Um, but we do know a couple of things about nutrition as well, that fiber balances hormones and fiber releases excess uh, estrogen. That's very important for the hormonal uh, cancers and sleep. Okay, so when I do a lot of presentations, I show the Olympic rings. There's five rings. Only one of them is nutrition. There's four others. <laughs> some we have control over, some we don't. So again, being realistic and having more of a stress-free approach because there's a lot of focus on um, good and bad foods, right? These foods are going to cause cancer, but there is no food that does that. But it's just this perception of sugar or soy or fat. You know, there's certain things that are gonna um, bring on the cancer. So reducing a lot of those, um, cutting through the nutrition myths, reducing a lot of the fears around food, um, understanding that um, how you eat, um, you know, how you view uh, food is gonna be more important than a lot of times the, the foods that you're eating, right? So if there's a lot of stress around uh, food anxiety, um, that's gonna raise cortisol, that's gonna mm -hmm. be not great for your health, in any case, whether it's a brownie or a green smoothie or whatever you consider healthy. So um, reducing a lot of those fears is really important. You know, a little science and um, around that is, you know, people generally want to be explained why, why that's, that can be important too. Because, um, and really the most important I find, you know, apart from all those suggestions is, um, is giving them their power back. So when they were going through cancer, they had no power. Every decision was made for them. Go here, go there, have this scan, um, you know, and then, and then it's over. And then you still don't feel like you have any power. So giving them that power to make choices, whether they want to eat that or not, it's very important. Um, where can they find their power again, whether it's a new identity or, you know, other ways to empower themselves basically. Um, and you know, one thriver said to me, I realize now that support starts with me. And that her that was very empowering. So, um, you know, kind of giving her that option to say, you, you know, you had the power all along. <laughs> from us. So um, anyway, but it's important to know that, that that's what they're really seeking is getting that power back. Yes. All the decision making was taken away from them. Yes. And we don't want to be yet another person being, you know, uh, be, being in power or having power over. So I think, I mean, I observe one thing about our profession in particular is that typically we're really lovely and <laughs> <laughs> here it comes. And also, um, we have a particular tendency to enact power over kind of movements with people, which I think because we are so lovely, it's like, yeah, but I'm being nice about it. It's like, no, 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 it doesn't negate. <laughs> it doesn't negate, you know, the, the way that we unintentionally um, actually perpetuate inequity 
And what you're speaking to there so beautifully, Tamar, is that when we can be next to, alongside and with our clients' experience, they are able to much more clearly have the space to then develop their own sense of empowerment and what being in charge and being empowered means to me rather than somebody just telling me what to do all the time. Right. That, that's such a great point because I have to say I was very guilty at that at the beginning. You just want to hand over all this information and what they're hearing is you need to be fixed. And no, they don't need to be fixed. They are absolutely don't. Um, we just need to acknowledge the trauma and let's move forward and see where we can go from here based on so many different factors, you know, and so it's not about fixing. <laughs> we tend to want to do that. I absolutely agree. Yeah, that's so true. I mean, because we're well-intentioned, right? It, you know, of course we want, we don't like to see people in pain because it brings up stuff for us, right? You can't acknowledge pain in, in someone else. It's very difficult to acknowledge the, um, the inevitable pain that as humans we all experience too. So I think it's one of the um, most valuable things I've learnt from health at every size and um, an inclusive practice is the willingness to identify my own discomfort and my own edges and my own pain so that it frees me up to see that and be with that in others. And it's such a, and I, 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 like you, I'll put up my hand and say, I've messed up so many times and I'm still messing up all the time. So I don't want anybody to feel like, oh yeah, she's doing it perfectly. Uh, no, 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 no. <laughs> um, and also if we can, if we're able to, um, you know, do our own work, alongside um you know working with others i think it gives it gives us a really great great opportunity to contribute towards healing in a really meaningful way right right exactly and that's why that i think that's why uh it's so hard to do body image really because it's not you doing the work they're doing the work you just kind of let's see where this goes and and allowing each other to do it you're really working together on this and it's 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 tough mm -hmm. it's it's much easier to say here's a list of foods right mm -hmm. yeah and then also it kind of lets us off the hook too because then we don't have to get into some pretty tricky conversations with people which can be really painful exactly right that's right mm. which is why I'm supervision ah, thank you yes <laughs> I love it in almost every single episode Tamar I'm like say supervision say supervision, say supervision. <laughs> True. yeah and inevitably everybody does. Everybody's like, supervision saved my life. Supervision saved my career. And I'm like, I'm right there with you. Right there. Right, right. Exactly. And for me, it was also about language. Um, I, I have a degree in English, so it starts from there. And I worked in the high-tech industry way before I was a dietitian. And language is so important. Um, and I find I needed the language also being in the weight-neutral space. It wasn't just about, I don't want to be offensive, but it was about how do I speak the language in a way that it's, it's accepted? You know, because uh, when you, you can say certain words and then a rebellion is, is set up in a way, right? So you wanna just kind of work with that and not lead to that. You, want, you don't wanna lead to that resistance. You wanna get to a space where they're comfortable. They feel they can open up and, you know, maybe talk about why 
they need the weight loss and things like that. So to me, language was really important. Yeah, I love that. I didn't know that about you, that you had an, an English, um, is it English li literature? Yes. Wow, <laughs> well, I wasn't, amazing. I became a tech writer in the high tech industry and um, they use language so differently. It's like a whole nother language, right? It's more about um, um, being very concise and just getting, uh, it actually helped me in nutrition because you have to get tough concepts across in, in a way that an engineer will listen. <laughs> they don't <laughs> language. So um, it was a really good training for me. And, uh, and then I actually, I never brought this up at the beginning, but what happened was, so I, was, I had a very successful high tech career. And then uh, I got breast cancer myself which is right on my website. You can read about it. But um, what happened was it was never in my family. So it was a total shock. So because now they say if you have family history, so uh, people should understand that you don't have to have a family history. It comes out in different types of cancers as well. Um, the BRCA mutation, which is uh, very high risk, can come out as ovarian cancer, melanoma, um, uh, uh, and breast cancer. And you could have the BRCA mutation and never have breast cancer as well so it's important to check that but that completely floored me that that happened and um that history was important to me because i went through it um and then i worked for dietitians after that and i realized this is really good stuff you know this is really helpful stuff and we need that after the cliff that i talked about you know when you're treatment so that's where i kind of honed on what i want to focus on Oh, that's so beautiful and kind of brings us around circle to back where, where we started. Um, I just appreciate you so much, Tamar, your, your, not only your uh, knowledge, but also your wisdom, your insight, your lived experience um, and the really amazing way you're able to communicate. Like, okay, so now that you've told me that you did an English literature degree, I'm like, Okay, this all makes sense because your writing is extraordinary and you communicate ideas so well. I've, just, I've learned so much from you and I just really appreciate it. I appreciate it. It means a lot coming from you as well. Of course. Um, so on that note, where can people find you? So I'm all over the place, but I have a website, TamaraRothenbergRD.com. I write a blog for Thrivers. I, uh, I'm on Instagram, Breast Cancer Nutritionist. And then on Facebook as Nutrition Nom Nom. And Nom Nom, I don't know if you have Sesame Street. I, I think it's a global phenomenon. So mm -hmm. He's the one that eats cookies and has, says Nom Nom all the time. So that speaks to me. I love that. <laughs> and, um, and then, uh, yeah, and I'm also an, amb an ambassador for Sharsharit, which is an um, organization that helps um, Jewish breast cancer and ovarian cancer go through treatment and beyond. Um, and, um, and I do a lot of public speaking as well to try to bust a lot of myths. So that is awesome. So if you've got, if you're a dietitian listening to this and you've got an event, then, um, Tamar is, would be an incredible speaker for your event to come and talk about, um, weight inclusive care for thrivers in particular, given that that's your very much your niche area. There's, there's so much to learn from Tamar. So hire her immediately. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> yeah. Oh dear goodness. Well, we could talk forever, Tamar. You know, it's just such a pleasure to know you, and um, I'm so I'm so grateful to to have you as part of 
our global community. So um, thank, thank you so much for, for taking the time to speak with me today and for sharing, sharing your wisdom. I really appreciate you so, so much. Well, I appreciate you giving me this incredible platform to speak as well. And it means so much to me that you invited me. Well, have a wonderful rest of your day. I'm at the start of my day. You're at the end of your day, which always feels really odd. However, that's okay. So I'm here to tell you that Thursday is looking pretty sunny and hopefully it will be in LA as well. Always. It's always here. <laughs> oh, so good. So uh, Tamar, again, thank you so, so much. And I look forward to speaking with you again soon. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye. Well, that's our episode of the Mindful Dietitian interview series for today. Thank you so much to our wonderful guest and to you for listening. I really hope you enjoyed it. Just a reminder that you can find me over on the website, www.themindfuldietitian.com.au and please join actually quite a large group of wonderful and enthusiastic dietitians on the closed Facebook group, The Mindful Dietitian. The music you hear is called Happiness from Ben Sound, used under the Creative Commons license. Have a great day, everyone.